Welcome to episode 268 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get my favorite electrolytes for free, plus special announcement, Element's new chocolate medley is here. So when you think electrolytes, you might think summer and hot times and needing to stay hydrated. But did you know that hydration is actually super important in cold weather as well? There's an idea out there that cold weather reduces our hydration needs. That's not true. So in the cold, two main things can actually increase our metabolic rate. You may be working harder, tramping through the snow, and you can be wearing cumbersome winter clothing that can actually raise your energy needs by 10 to 20%. And as your metabolic rate raises, your sweat rate raises, and you need to replace those fluids with electrolytes. You also lose more water when it's cold through your breath. That's because cold temperatures contain significantly less water than hot temperatures, aka it's drier outside. When you breathe in that cold, dry air, your respiratory system actually acts like a humidifier so that your body can be warm and humid like it likes to be. Of course, that drains your hydration reserves as well. One study actually found that respiratory water loss after a full day of activity nearly doubled at freezing temperatures compared to the 70s. On top of that, when you're cold, you actually become less thirsty, possibly from blood vessel constrictions in the cold, which can trick the body into thinking the blood volume is higher than it is. In other words, it's cold out there. You probably need hydration. And electrolytes are so key for all of these cellular processes in your body, all of your energy production. It all requires electrolytes, but it can be hard to find electrolytes, which are clean, without unnecessary fillers, and which you can feel good about drinking. That's why I love Element. There's a reason I'm obsessed with it. There's a reason all you guys are as well. And like I said, I'm so excited because Element's new chocolate medley is here featuring chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. And this is a limited time, so you definitely want to stock up on these now. Plus, you can get a free gift with purchase when you purchase that chocolate medley or other Element electrolytes. That's right, you can get a free sample pack, eight single serving packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. You can get yours at drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. That's drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. By the way, those chocolates in that chocolate medley make delicious hot chocolates. And of course, as always, Element has a no questions asked refund, so you have nothing to lose. So go to drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast to get your free electrolytes. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons 
reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 268 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. How are you today, Cynthia? I'm doing well, my friend. How are you? I'm very good. I'm excited to hear, we were just talking before recording about how you're going to be speaking at KetoCon. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about that? It's exciting. So this is, I mean, they haven't had KetoCon in two years because of the pandemic. And so some of my absolute favorite humans in the health and wellness space are going to be there. People like Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and Chris Irwin and Ben Azadi and Anna Kabeca and Mindy Peltz and all sorts of humans. And so... I am going to be the first speaker on the first day and I'm doing a book signing and I'm doing a couple other things, a little Q&A. And so it'll, I'll have an opportunity to actually see people up close and personal as opposed to at smaller events that I've been doing over the last, you know, year and a half. And, you know, Austin's such a great foodie city, you know, for anyone who's been there, they have great restaurants and they generally tend to avoid inferior seed oils that you and I are both not fans of. And so it's always a location that I enjoy visiting. We actually have family there as well, but it'll be hotter than Hades because it's Texas in the summer, but we will navigate uh, lots of air conditioning and I'm really excited to be going. And so we'll make sure that we include, I have a discount code if people would like to go to the three-day event. We'll include that in the show notes for everyone. What is the discount code? I think it's EWP, but I'll double check. Okay. Awesome. We've had Anna Kabeca on the show twice, I think, on this show. So listeners like loved those interviews. Yeah. Anna's amazing. She's amazing. I'm sure out of our whole audience, I'm sure some people are going. So hopefully they can see you. That'd be really, really exciting. I'm actually interviewing, well, hopefully, Dr. Gabrielle Lyons on Monday, this Monday, tomorrow. Yeah. I think your listeners are going to love her. She's so smart. She's coming out with a book next year and she has such a fresh perspective on muscle protein synthesis and the value of muscle as an organ of longevity. And I've just learned so much from her. In fact, I jokingly tell her, I quote her almost on the daily because she's made such a large impact on my own, you know, not only my own personal health journey, but also the information I share with women. And so I think your listeners will get a lot out of it. And it'll really keep people thinking about how to be ensuring they're getting enough protein into their diets because, you know, she did her residency and her training, you know, working with gerontologic populations. So older patients and so sarcopenia, which is this muscle loss with aging is a huge issue. 
And ladies, it's not a question of if, but when. It'll happen if you don't do everything you can to work against it. The one thing that I think is really important to kind of dovetail into this conversation is that insulin resistance starts in our muscles. So it, it really reaffirms the need to consume enough protein and make sure that you are getting enough rest and your strength training, you know, it's really, really important. It's not just for aesthetics. Like I think a lot of people assume that those of us that talk about this, that we're just concerned about aesthetics. And I'm like, no, 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 this is really about your health and understanding that metabolic flexibility really starts with your muscle physiology. Yeah, I think it is just so important. And I think that insulin resistance starts at the muscle. It's such a paradigm shift because I think most people think it would be in the fat cells that we first become insulin resistant. But yeah, the role of muscle is just so, so huge. And I think there could be a lot of benefit if people, because we're so fat focused, but there could be so much benefit if we shifted our focus more to supporting muscle. And even when it comes to diet, like eating more protein and rather than cutting calories or cutting fat or cutting carbs, like just focusing on the protein is huge. Because I know even in the work I do with women, we've been conditioned that we want to count calories or we want to count macros, you know, constantly. And I just say, listen, if you can aim for 100 grams of protein a day, everything else will fall into place. And that blows people's minds. And, and even like I'll use a good example. You know, my husband, I don't know if I've told you this. My husband is the meal is the meal prep guy in our house because he's an engineer. And he's very like he doesn't mind spending two or three hours prepping protein. And that's really the most important thing because we have teen boys And this morning, like all of the normal things we would have in the house weren't here. And so I had like leftover shrimp. I had leftover mahi-mahi. And and just, I, you know, calculated how much protein was in this meal. And so I'm always trying at a minimum 40 to 50 grams in a meal because that's, it's so important to me. Make sure in my two meals, I'm really pushing the envelope with protein a little lower than what I would normally eat. And my husband was laughing at me and he was saying, yeah, I know, like I completely flummoxed your meal prep today because, you know, we had to go to the grocery store. So sometimes I think you just have to make do with what you have. But for me, if I hit a certain threshold of protein intake, I'm very full and then I'm ready to eat, you know, four or five hours later. I think that is so important, especially because, you know, we get a lot of questions from people who struggle with feeling full or just reaching satiety. And it's really incredible if you just focus on the protein aspect. And that's what I do. And as you know, I, I eat exuberant amounts of protein. I probably eat too much protein. I, I don't know. I'm going to ask Gabrielle that tomorrow. That'd be a great question for her. I do. I mean, it's, I don't know. I think I texted you it the other day. I mean, it's over 200 grams definitely each night. That's amazing. And for ladies that are listening, this is because... Melanie is a different life stage. Like if I ate 200 grams of protein, I probably would fall over and my stomach would explode. That's why I do a bolus in two meals and I generally can hit it. Like it's it's been working. Like I met Gabrielle in 2000 and t- 2020, sorry. The first thing she said to me is you probably don't eat enough protein. And I looked at her like she was crazy. Of course she was right. And since then I, I said to her, I was like, you made such an impression. I went home and started measuring how much protein I was eating. And I was like, she's right. So pushing those protein values like Melanie is a unicorn. Don't listen to what Melanie is saying and feel like somehow you're inferior. It's just she is at a different life stage. So she can probably bolus her protein that way. I have to divide it between two meals, but always aim for aiming for 100 grams a day. Some days I hit 110. Some days if I'm really good, I can hit 120. But that's always the goal. Two big meals. Yeah, I'm so I'm so excited to talk to her about this. And this is actually really helpful for me prepping for tomorrow because I'm thinking about what I'm going to ask her because I actually wonder about myself. I've been eating this way for so long. The reason I'm eating this way is because I had an epiphany like a decade ago. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say this, but the reason I did this was I realized like protein is the one macronutrient that is is most likely to become muscle and least likely to become fat. So I realized, oh, if I just eat protein, I can literally eat as much as I want and probably lose weight. And that's what happened. But then I just started loving protein so much. So I'm wondering if my body like preferentially uses protein as its fuel source, which I don't think is, I don't know necessarily that that's healthy. So I need to talk to her about that aspect. Well, I can't wait to hear your conversation. She's like just such a like firmly science-based clinician and so smart. I was teasing her the other day because she's on like all the podcasts. Like she was just on Lewis Howes and Drew Pruitt and 
gosh, I mean, it's like I turn around, I'm like every day I turn around, there you are. <laughs> so I love that she's getting information out there that all of us need. It's so, so important. How did you meet her? I met her at a conference. I was actually out in Portland and we were on a panel together and it, it was like instantly she was just like one of these people I wanted to get to know and be friends with. And I met her husband and her and her daughter. She now has another child, but just like an instant connection. And, you know, as I told you, one of the first things she said to me, you're probably not eating enough protein. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then after hearing her speak, I was like, oh my God, I'm totally not eating enough protein. Well, I'm excited. And then one other little thing for listeners yesterday, was it yesterday? No, no. A few days ago, I interviewed Rick Johnson for this show. So I can't wait. I'm not sure when we're going to release that episode, but that'll be very exciting for listeners to hear because he just dives so deep into metabolic health and insulin resistance and fructose and all these really cool things and why our bodies naturally want to store fat based on our diet and lifestyle. Absolutely. Well, he's probably, I would say, I was just looking at my metrics on my podcast today and he is a top three downloaded podcast for the whole year, which is just incredible. And I think it's because he makes the information accessible. Like you and I both know, there are a lot of researchers that are just brilliant but they don't bring it down to a level where the average person has something they can take away. They just kind of go, I don't know what that person just said. <laughs> I have to have, you know, Melanie needs to translate it or Cynthia needs to translate it, but his enthusiasm is infectious and his book is wonderful. And I just, for anyone that's listening, before we even recorded together, he read my book and I was so touched because I thought to myself, here is this you know, very respected researcher who's reading a book about fasting and women. And he had so many nice things to say. So he's just a really nice human who just happens to be kind, compassionate, smart, and as far as I'm concerned, utterly brilliant. I sent him my book, I think after I interviewed him, maybe. And he sent me a picture and he was like, here it is on my shelf. I'm reading it. I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm so honored. <laughs> yeah. So I think listeners will really, really enjoy that. Absolutely exciting announcement for listeners. So we are actually going to do a giveaway for this episode. So what all is included in the giveaway? So it's products from one of my favorite pharmaceutical grade companies, Designs for Health, and it's some of their special chocolates and also some of my favorite products that they utilize. And we thought it would be fun for people to participate in the giveaway. And I think what we had talked about was if you have purchased my book, we'd like you to leave a review and screenshot and share that with us and we will enter you into the giveaway. That will be sent to you, whoever is the lucky participant. But it's some of my favorite Designs for Health products, including things like inositol, which can be helpful for blood sugar regulation as well as sleep support and those chocolates, which are really interesting. Like some of them have like reishi in them. So medicinal mushrooms, not wacky mushrooms, medicinal mushrooms and some other things. So really it's a fun, a fun grouping of products. Awesome. So we are going to put that picture for the giveaway on our Instagram today, the day that this episode airs. So again, to enter to win that, go to Amazon, Amazon or any other review or what are the platforms? Yeah. So Target, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, wherever you purchased it from, you just need to screenshot the review and share that with us and we will enter you into the giveaway. So to recap, friends, listeners, go to Amazon or wherever you review your books, write a review of Cynthia's incredible book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation, send a screenshot to questions at ipodcast.com and we will enter you into that giveaway and instructions and pictures of the giveaway and such will also be on our Instagram. So check that out. And our Instagram is ifpodcast. An important note for that giveaway, it is open only to listeners in the continental United States. So, okay. Shall we jump into everything for today? Yes. So to start things off, we have some listener feedback and this actually comes from Scott and it is feedback from a question, which was pre-Cynthia. So Cynthia, we got a question from a listener who really struggled with dry mouth and was looking for suggestions on how to deal with that, especially with fasting and things like that. So Scott wrote in and he said, hello, ladies, on the April 11th episode, a question on dry mouth was asked. Here are two tips that helped me significantly. After coffee in the morning, 
coconut oil for 10 to 15 minutes. So he's referring to oil pulling, not eating coconut oil. It's an important distinction. I actually, do you do oil pulling, Cynthia? I don't. I do. I don't. I scrape my tongue. I have, you know, I, I use Primal Loaf Organics and I love their products. I don't. I don't. I, I think for me, it's like one extra step I just don't want to do. I do it. So I remember when I started doing it, I was like on, off, on, off because I saw it as something like you just said, where, you know, something extra to do. But now it's just so integrated in my routine that I do it while I'm, because I, I eat really late as listeners know. So every morning I'm like cleaning up the kitchen from the night before and unloading the dishwasher and and such. So I I oil bowl while doing that. And it's it's basically where you take coconut oil or I use MCT oil and you swish it around in your mouth, like Scott said, for 10 to 15 minutes. And I think it's an Ayurvedic tradition. The thoughts, I know it's debated, but the thoughts are that it pulls toxins out of your mouth and potentially even bloodstream. Again, it's debated. I really, I really enjoy it. So he's saying that it might help dry mouth. Then he says he also oil pulls after each meal. I do not do that. Oh, and he does one last oil pull right before bed. And then he says, lastly, if you have no breathing obstructions such as apnea, try mouth taping before sleep. Have you done mouth taping? I have, but I'm not. I'm not an obligate mouth breather. And I've actually had a sleep study and I do not have sleep apnea. So I've done it, but... I didn't see an improvement. And and for me, it's like I track my sleep on my aura anyway. So it gives me some degree of objectivity. But when I think about dry mouth, I start thinking about, are you taking a medication that's drying your mouth out, like antihistamines? I then think, you know, there are certain, you know, autoimmune issues that people can develop where they will get a dry mouth. And so that's the direction my brain goes in. So I think Scott's suggestions are really easy things to do up front while you're considering that maybe it's related to a side effect to a medication. Maybe you're not drinking enough water, you know, especially with electrolytes. I know we were just talking about Rob Wolf and I'm a huge fan of electrolytes. In fact, I would say that my HRV stuff has been off since I had surgery, which is not surprising. And it was like, after two weeks, I was frustrated. I was like, okay, I'm doing all the things. Now what do I need? And so for the last three days, I've been really dedicated about electrolyte repletion and my HRV numbers and my sleep scores are improving. So I have to believe that that's part of it. So just in when I'm thinking about how this could pertain to Scott, I'm thinking about, you know, definitely thinking outside the box. But I love that he brought up oil pulling because that certainly doesn't hurt. So two thoughts to that. I'm glad you said that because that jogged my memory about the original question. The woman who wrote in, she was on medications, which were non-negotiables for her at that moment, and they were causing dry mouth. So she was looking for um, ways to mitigate it while still being on the medication. And then the element, I'm glad you brought that up, did not plan this. They're actually a sponsor on today's show. So listeners, listen for the ad in today's show because our offer actually will give you a free sample pack so you can get some of those for free. I think our link is drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. Oh, and then the mouth taping, just really quickly. I know you and I have both interviewed James Nestor. After I interviewed him, I tried mouth taping, but I I didn't continue. I'm not a mouth breather as well. So yeah, I've never done a sleep study though. Is it outpatient or inpatient? Yeah, it was like a, a little device shows up at your house and you do it and then it download it uploads all the data and then someone meets with you and evaluates it. And mine was fine. I didn't suspect that I had sleep apnea, but my integrative medicine doc insisted I do it probably based on my age. This is one of those things I'm like, based on your age, we should probably do this. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I'm happy to report that I'm middle-aged without sleep apnea. I have three questions for you about that. One, is the device uncomfortable in any way? Like, would it interfere with your normal sleep wearing it? No, it was a little electrode and then I had a little pulse oximeter. So if anyone's familiar, it almost looks like a little clip you put on your finger. So it's monitoring you know, like your heart rate and your pulse rate, your oxygenation. No, it wasn't. Although, you know, the instructions kind of identify if you toss and turn, you might impact the validity of the test. So I made sure I'm kind of a corpse sleeper, meaning if you were to ask my husband, I don't really move around a lot at night. By the time I fall asleep, I'm I either lie flat on my back or on my side. I don't really toss and turn much. But I would imagine if someone's, you know, a disruptive sleeper who's back and forth that they could potentially knock 
the apparatus off, but it was pretty benign. It wasn't as cumbersome as a traditional polysonography test where you're in an environment where you've got electrodes all over your body and you're in a lab sleeping in a hospital bed, which of course is not at all, you know, akin to the average person really having a restful night of sleep under those circumstances. This is probably a screening tool. Like if you are, if, if they're concerned about it, this might be a good screening tool, but it certainly is sensitive enough that if there isn't an indication that you're having periods of apnea or hypopnea or anything like that, that they can successfully kind of rule out that you've got something significant. Plus the other thing is your listeners may or may not know this, but when I worked in cardiology as an MP, especially with men, if someone had a really big neck size, like let's say a size 17 shirt or greater, you assume they have sleep apnea until proven otherwise. Yeah. So if someone has, even if it's a woman and they have a big neck, I'm going to be thinking about sleep apnea. So just, you know, one of those kind of clinical pearls over the years that I learned, I used to sometimes, you know, I was like, do you snore when you sleep? And people were like, what? I'm like, well, you kind of have a big neck. So, you know, and then as we get older, collagen and elastin don't work quite as well. And so it's more common for people to get, you know, floppy in the back of their posterior pharynx, which can obstruct things. Or if they've got a deviated septum, I mean, there's a whole slew of things that can make you more prone to developing sleep apnea beyond just being overweight. Yeah, that was the reason I asked was because I've always... I've always been suspicious of the inpatient studies because that just seems like, especially if it's somebody who is already struggling with insomnia, it seems like being in a foreign environment like that, it wouldn't naturally capture your your normal sleep state. Being able to do it at home in a non-invasive manner sounds pretty cool. I didn't even know that was an option. Yeah. I mean, I'm presuming they leave it for people that they think there's a low threshold for them actually having a positive test. Like I know in order for insurance to cover CPAP or BiPAP, which is the traditional kind of technologies to address sleep apnea beyond the lifestyle stuff, you have to have a formal test. So we actually had a a sleep specialist in our practice that just, that's all they did all day long was sleep studies. And so I would sometimes, you know, circulate to that part of the practice and would marvel at all the technology that goes on with it. So is it measuring things beyond like something that an aura ring would capture? Yes. Yes. Because they've got, I mean, you have electrodes everywhere. I mean, they've got a 12 lead EKG that's going on. They've got, you know, they're looking at brain waves. I mean, it depends on how sophisticated, you know, the environment is, but more often than not, untreated obstructive sleep apnea puts you at risk for diabetes and high blood pressure. So we know that if you're not properly oxygenating your body, it's a stressor and not in a good way. And so we used to always say like, how many of these patients, once we started treating their sleep apnea, their blood sugar got better, their blood pressure got better, they lost weight. And so much to what I tell my female patients and clients is if I can't get you to sleep through the night, I can't get you to lose weight. And for a lot of people, it's oftentimes that missing link. So if anyone's listening to this and they know they snore or they have periods of apnea where they stop breathing, you definitely want to connect with your internist and ask them to consider evaluation. Now, some internists will actually just order the test. Others want to refer you to a pulmonologist or a lung doctor so that they can follow you. Wow. That is insanely helpful. It also reminded me of one super random, very quick tangent, I promise. But the jostling of the device I was listening again to another Peter Atia episode, and he mentioned something that I have always wondered and didn't understand until now. This is his theory. I don't know if this is like true because he said it was his theory, so I'm not sure if this is actually what's happening. But why do you think when people put in a CGM that it takes a few days to be correct? You know how like the first few days that they say it can be off? Yeah, they tell you to kind of throw the data away. I thought it had more to do with the device itself and trying to kind of get acclimated. But is it due to people that are making changes because they then have the CGM? So he said he thinks, I thought it was as well what you said. He said he thinks it's because putting it in creates an injury to, you know, trauma in that area. And that affects the use of glucose in that area. And so it has to like regulate. I was like, oh. I mean, because when I think injury, I think... He said trauma. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's like a micro trauma. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, I, I, I have to tell you, I, I generally think Peter's pretty brilliant. I'll have to think about that. I haven't Googled it or researched it, but I was like, that's interesting. No, I call it the Peter Atia rabbit hole because sometimes he makes me think about something and I'm like, all right, I need to process 
And then after I process, I need to like go down a couple rabbit holes and then I have to think more about it. But I think what's important is that we understand and consider that there might be different variables that impact how well a glucometer is reading things. Like sometimes I put on my CGM and I have to calibrate it within 24 hours. I'm like, you know, my glucometer says one thing and my CGM says another. And there's so, there's such a disparity. This one I have on beautiful because I waited two and a half weeks after my surgery to even put it back on. Cause I just didn't want to know <laughs> what my body was doing, but I'm happy to report my, my blood sugar is looking pretty darn good. How often do you wear one? You know, I wore it for about 18 months and then I needed a break. Whoa, 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 whoa. I thought I was doing a lot. Yeah. Well, cause I was, I was fascinated with it. And then in March I decided because of the book launch, I didn't want to know because I'm the type of person I get excited when I do a podcast. I get excited when I do something, when I connect with other people. And every time I would do an interview, my blood, my my cortisol would go up and my blood sugar would go up. And I was like, I could literally just watch these little micro spikes all day long. And I was like, this is going to make me crazy. So I took a two month break, and it was good. Now putting it back on, I'm like, okay, now I'm ready to kind of. I've got two more upstairs. I'll do it for a little while, and then I'll reassess. But I think it's it's helpful. I don't think you have to do it for 18 months, but. I tend to be a data geek and I tend to really enjoy tracking information, but I acknowledge I don't stress about it. I just kind of go, hmm, okay, what do I need to do differently today? I probably wore one for maybe like four or five months. And then I haven't recently. I actually just reached out to NutriSense and asked them to send me some more because I want to I jump back on. But that, that was something else because the episode I was listening to was a, it was either the CGM episode or like just a, a blood sugar episode, but he was talking all about HbA1c and blood sugar regulation. And he did mention similar to what you just said, and I think this is important for listeners to know. He said the highest spikes he sees and he thinks are often possible for people actually aren't from eating. They're from things like exercise, from you know the liver shunting out glucose. So high stress events can definitely cause things like that. He was actually suggesting if it makes people uneasy or like stressed about it, kind of like you were talking about with the with the launch, just not looking at that data during, the, because you know why it's happening. So you have to know yourself and know your relationship with the data and how it makes you feel and what's the most healthy way to engage with it. I think that's important. It's interesting. So listeners may or may not know this. I carb cycle. And on Friday, I decided Friday was going to be my higher carb day of the week. And so I had some sweet potato you know, I was happy to see that I didn't get much of a glucose or blood sugar spike. It was like a difference of, I think it went up 25 points, but it came down like almost immediately. And that's really what you want to see, not this kind of prolonged elevation in blood sugar. So, so for me on higher carb days, I'm really mindful of what mitigates my blood sugar response. And I always, almost always start with protein and then add in the carb. And it's interesting. Have you read Glucose Goddess yet? Her new book. She's an author. She, I believe, is a biochemist and her book is doing like doing really, really well, but she's a proponent of starting with vegetables first and then protein. I haven't gotten the book. Like I have it ordered, so it should arrive this week. It's a new book? Mm-hmm. It's a new book. And it's like people are, there are a lot of people in like the metabolic health space that are talking about it. And I actually reached out to her because I was like, I'd love to interview you. I'd love to understand, you know, more about your book and your work, et cetera. But I think she's a biochemist. So... I think she's got kind of a refreshing take and she's in Europe, I believe. Does she have a book before this or is this her first book? I thought this was her first, but I could be mistaken. I'm looking on Amazon right now. Is it How to Be a Glucose Goddess? She's called Glucose Goddess, but I think, what's the name of the book? Okay. Yes. I just found it. So it's... Glucose Revolution. Yeah. Glucose Revolution, The Life-Changing Power of Balancing Your Blood Sugar by Jessie. I have no idea how you say her last name. Do you know how you say her last name? In Chop. Trust me. I don't know if she's French, but like she speaks English really like clearly, but I think she's French. Came out March 31st of this year and it already has 732 ratings, five stars. Her endorsement is by Tim Spector. Have you heard back from her? Yes. She said yes. And Abby's supposed to reach out to her. I was like one of those things I wanted to make sure I mentioned it to you because I know you would want to have her on your radar too. Her other endorsement is from David Sinclair. Very cool. One of my favorites. I'll have to check it out and listen to your interview with her. 
Going back to Scott, he had a quick PS. He said also that ashwagandha and kefir have both been shown to help with dry mouth. Are you a fan of adaptogens, Cynthia? Oh gosh, I use tons of them. I'm a huge fan. In fact, when my HRV was off and my readiness score was, you know, in the toilet, <laughs> been that way since I had surgery, I started tweaking with some adaptogenic herbs. And so I'm a big proponent. I don't use them all the time, but clearly my body was still perceiving like a significant stress response. And so I've been, again, with the electrolytes the last couple of days and then adding in, there's an herbal blend that I will sometimes use by Designs for Health that has got like a little bit of licorice root. So it can be a little bit stimulating, but it's got ashwagandha, has holy basil. So it's designed to be nourishing to the adrenal glands. And to me, it's not at all stimulating. Like I don't, I don't take that if I feel like I need an adrenal glandular, but I do love adaptogens. So they're plant-based compounds if people are unfamiliar with them. But, you know, to me, it's a really nourishing way to help balance cortisol. And the really cool thing is that a lot of these adaptogenic herbs can help buffer cortisol if it's high and they can, if your cortisol is low for some people, and ashwagandha is a good example of this, it can do both. It can also be, you know, a little bit stimulating. And that's the amazing thing with these plant-based compounds. And that's why it's also important to work with someone that that understands how a lot of these plant-based compounds worked. But to me, it's one of the easiest ways to provide adrenal support and stress support in the body. And it could be as simple as like drinking holy basil tea. Like you don't even have to make it complicated. It doesn't have to be in a capsule form. There's a lot of different ways, a lot of different ways. And I love teas in particular. There's a friend of mine uh, who's a master herbalist and an acupuncturist, and she has a company called Striving for Health. She makes the most amazing tea blends. And so I used to be able to see her in person, but I, you know, order her teas as gifts all the time because people really enjoy them. I know people are going to ask, are these teas okay for the clean fast? It depends on which tea you're looking at. A lot of them have got, you know, different components. So because she's a master herbalist, she pulls different things together. There are a couple, but I I always say like when in doubt, just have it when you break your fast or have it before bedtime. Most of her herbal teas are not caffeinated. And if they are, she is very clear about identifying which ones are. There's, she's got some for immune support. She has some for stress. You know, she has some that are, you know, she calls them, you know, like love. And it's not meant like they don't boost your libido, but they're very calming. And so you can definitely check out her her products on her website. She It's a really high quality tease. And she sources very carefully. And she's a bit OCD. She used to have CBD products that were phenomenal. And I think with the pandemic, it really changed her business model a bit. So I think those are now on hold, but she really has some beautiful, beautiful tea is if people are tea drinkers or just want to try different things. One thing about tea, people may or may not know, a lot of it's contaminated. So you always want to make sure you're getting from a good source, whether it's organic or, you know, working with a master herbalist who knows a lot about where they're sourcing their products from. The adaptogen I've had the most success with personally, at least because I think something to understand is that, you know, we're all unique. And so different adaptogens might work for different people. And the one that always worked for me really well was rhodiola. I just respond well to that one. It's interesting. I've only had one patient who didn't do well with rhodiola. So generally it's it's very nourishing. So you take it before bed. It's very calming, helps buffer cortisol. And there was some genetic snip. I forget what it was, but she took it and she was like wide awake all night long. And I was like, oh my God, this is, I've never seen this happen. But yeah, we'll have to like, we'll have to do a podcast and we'll dig into the adaptogens because they're really fascinating And how some are better before bed, some are better if you need things to be stimulating. There's really good research on ashwagandha and maca. So those are two that I I generally say are, there's enough research on both of them to to feel comfortable saying, you know, you can go, you know, pull research and look at, you know, the effects in women. And it's, it's fascinating. Do you have thoughts on, I remember when I was in my adaptogen research crazy phase, people will say that ashwagandha is a nightshade. Have you heard that? Yes. And so if you're sensitive to tomatoes and potatoes and peppers, you want to be careful with ashwagandha. To be fair, I mean, it's in that family. Like if you don't tolerate eggplant and white potatoes and peppers, uh, you might want to be careful with ashwagandha. Awesome. Okay. Shall we go on to our next question? Thank you for the feedback, Scott. That was really helpful and inspired a lot of tangents. Shall we go on to our first question? Absolutely. This is from Maria. Subject is struggling with intermittent fasting. I have been fasting for approximately five months, but I am struggling. 
I started with 16-8 and have worked my way to fasting 20 to 22 hours a day. I have done two 24-hour fasts. I have Raynaud's, which makes fasting difficult on some days because I get so cold and it is hard to get the blood flowing in my hands. On a recent visit to my doctor for my annual exam, my blood work showed a positive result for inflammation, specifically RA and ANA. I have an appointment with a specialist soon. I feel better than I did when I was eating all the time and I've lost a few pounds, but I'm not really seeing any changes in my body. Although I'm not going to give up on fasting, I'm feeling discouraged. I know the process is different for everyone because everyone's body is different and has different needs and I keep reminding myself to let the process work. But I am wondering if I need to tweak what I am doing and what that should look like. I am basically eating whatever I want during my window, including sweets. I used to work out all of the time, but I have not since school started in August. I hope to get back to it this spring. I am not sleeping well, and I definitely do not feel energetic. Could I be one of those that will need to modify my diet? Looking for some guidance on what to do. I don't want to give up on fasting. All right, Maria. Well, thank you so much for your question. I've always said Renaud's. Is it Renaud's or Raynaud's or... We used to call it Raynaud's. And so it's a vasospasm in the fingers. So I used to struggle with that pretty badly. I think a lot of people don't realize that it's considered to be an autoimmune condition as well, which makes sense. It might tie into your your blood work that you got back about autoimmune indicators. So I think this question is really important because I think there's a, when she says at the end, could I be one of the few that will need to modify my diet? I think there's this big misconception in the fasting world that fasting is the be all end all and you know, it will magically solve everything and that your diet choices don't matter. I just feel so strongly that your diet choices do matter. And especially if you're struggling with autoimmune conditions. So with autoimmune conditions, your immune system is, you know, reacting to things and it has misidentified certain proteins in your body as being problematic and having and mounting an immune attack on those. And that can very intensely be linked to dietary choices and what you're eating, encouraging that or sparking that or keeping that going. Because I've had a lot of episodes on autoimmune issues and elimination diets and stuff. I would check out my interview with Dr. Will Cole for his book, The Inflammation Spectrum, because we really dive deep into autoimmune conditions and how they start. Like by the time you see antibodies on your results, like that was a long time coming. Like they don't just pop up overnight. That episode, the show notes are at melanieavalon.com slash inflammation. So check out that episode to learn a little bit more about autoimmune conditions. But Maria, the good thing here is that, because this is something else that I think happens. So people will be doing the fasting. And if there are other factors... So, so fasting can be very restorative and healing and mitigating the damage that might be happening from other lifestyle choices, from food choices, from stress. But if you're still exposing your body to those problematic factors, fasting doesn't make those go away. It just helps with the process. And so if you aren't making the progress that you're hoping to make, or you still aren't feeling well, or you're you know experiencing autoimmune conditions, it, it has nothing to do with the fasting not working at all. So that that's a really nice reframe and paradigm shift that you can have. You don't need to give up on the fasting because the fasting isn't not working. It's that's probably something else you're doing is not working. <laughs> and I don't think you are one of the few that needs to modify your diet. I, and it's just my personal opinion. I think a lot of people will thrive when they find the diet that best suits them. So this can be very empowering, Maria, because there's so much potential here for change, especially since you haven't made any changes in what you're eating. There is so much potential here. I think you can make radical shifts if you find the diet that works for you and figure out what's, you know, exacerbating these conditions. Oh, and I want to bring up so the Ray notes. My Ray notes went away when I adopted. So I was low carb, but I wasn't quote paleo. So I was still eating a lot of processed foods, a lot of gluten, even additives, and a high fat, low carb diet. And I had Ray notes and when I switched to paleo and cut out the additives and just ate a diet of whole foods, fruit, vegetables, meat, my Raynaud's went away. So there's a lot of potential. Do you have thoughts, Cynthia? I do. The first thought is once you have one autoimmune issue, you're more prone to them again. And autoimmune issues almost always speak to hyperpermeability of the small intestine, aka leaky gut. So, you know, when I think about, we already know she's got some type of inflammation, she's not sleeping well, 
you know, she's eating a lot of sweets. You know, she mentioned that she's eating sweets and this is not a judgment. I'm just kind of pointing out what she shared with us. I think this really speaks to, we need more information. And, you know, when she sees that specialist who I'm assuming is going to be a rheumatologist, very likely, they may or may not talk to her about nutrition, but the lifestyle piece is critically important. You got to dial in on the sleep. And in fact, in my book, I talk a lot about the fact that if you can't sleep through the night, your body's not in the position to be able to add the hormesis or the hormetic stressor of fasting. This isn't to suggest 12 hours a day isn't great. That's a great starting point. But this is absolutely positively, and I don't know how old Maria is, so if she's perimenopausal, menopausal, we don't respond to stress the same way. And so my first recommendation would be, obviously, you're going to see that specialist, which I think is great. You're already prone to developing another autoimmune issue. That's number two. Number three, got to dial in on the sleep and the nutrition. I love Melanie's suggestion about looking into Dr. Will Cole's book, The Autoimmune. So when we look at autoimmunity, and we're looking at, you know, diets that are going to reduce inflammation in the body. It's pulling out the most inflammatory foods, you know, gluten and grains and dairy and sugar and alcohol, and really looking at your, you know, your relationship with each one of those. If that's triggering, if that is bothersome to hear, really looking at like, well, maybe I'm eating the sweets because I'm so tired because my body's not getting the degree of nourishing sleep that it really needs. And so that's really a great starting point. Like start with the lifestyle piece, but the sleep if you are not sleeping through the night and that's the way it is consistently, you have to address that first because we know based on research what is happening in your body when you're not getting restorative sleep. You know, we know that it, it leads to blood sugar dysregulation. It leads to issues with leptin and ghrelin, which are these hunger and satiety hormones. And you don't make good choices when you're sleep deprived. You're not going to crave broccoli. You're going to crave sweets because your body's looking for a quick fuel source. So definitely keep us posted but when I read that, those are the things that stood out to me. I'm so glad you brought up the sleep aspect. And it's interesting. I was recording my intro because the episode that's releasing, I think in two weeks on my other show is with Dr. Michael Bruce. I released one episode with him about sleep, but this is a part two. And when I was recording the intro, I made the statement that I think sleep is out of all the health things, the thing that I think about the most or most prioritize. And I, I said it and then I was like, is that a true statement? Because you know, I think a lot about fasting. I think a lot about diet, but it is like, I, I think sleep is so, so important. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Absolutely. And I love Dr. Bruce. He's just, you know, he's another person that I think of like Rick Johnson, whose enthusiasm for what he does is infectious. Oh, it's he's so enthusiastic. All right. So we have a question from Jessica. I'm really excited about this question. This came in and I was like, Cynthia, would you be able to speak to this? And she said, yes. So I was like excited. The subject is Botox. And Jessica says, hi, Melanie. Welcome, Cynthia. I believe I've listened to all of the IF podcasts and I don't think I've heard any Botox discussion. Could IF make my body metabolize Botox quicker? It usually lasts about three months. I have some non-IF friends who have Botox that lasts longer, closer to four to five months. We go to the same plastic surgeon. So same Botox supply, same Botox areas and injection procedure. I'm 40 years old, very healthy overall. I've done IF for two years and now I'm in maintenance mode. I'm 5'6 and I weigh 135 pounds. I've only been doing Botox for the last year, so I don't know how my body would have reacted to Botox with no IF. I'm also curious on your thoughts on Botox in general. Do the two of you do Botox? I know it's a personal question, but I trust the two of you so much and would love any insight on the risk versus reward. I will say it makes me feel good when I look in the mirror, which is just one piece of the puzzle for my overall well-being. Thank you. This is a great question. I will be happy and transparent with everyone and say that I have used Botox for about 12 years. And I initially started using it because I have a very hypermobile forehead and it just bothered me. I also have one eyebrow that sits a little lower than the other. And I, I think that Botox is fine for people to utilize. I, I think it's it really requires a very precise application because no one wants to look like the real housewives who are over-botoxed and over-filled and over-plumped. I think on a lot of levels, I'm very transparent about this on, on social media because people are shocked when they hear me talk about it. And I said, there's no shame if you decide to use Botox. I've never had a, a bad situation with Botox. I've always gone to the same provider who's in Northern Virginia and is arguably 
one of the most talented providers I've ever met in my entire life. So I think there's nothing wrong with doing Botox. Obviously, I was middle-aged when I started using it. And the irony is that my Botox doesn't last as long as my friends does. And the general school of thought, because I've talked to plastic surgery friends of mine, I've talked about this with my own provider, and they think there are just some people who metabolize the Botox toxin faster than others. And it, it isn't always in you know thinner, fitter people. Sometimes it can be in heavier people. And I think that's really speaking to our own physiology. So actually what I do now is what we affectionately refer to as baby Botox. So I do very small increments, but I do it more frequently. And that's worked better for me. That's actually lasted longer than when I was doing, I don't know, 20 to 30 units every six months. Now I do about half of that. And do it more frequently. And that has worked well. And I don't want to have a frozen face. I don't have any desire to pretend that I'm not a 50-year-old woman. But, you know, I even looked in the research to see if there was anything to suggest. There's an association with, you know, being a faster metabolizer. There was nothing that I was able to locate. But I think this is probably just what makes you unique, Jessica. And I share the same, the same issue. And I, I think on a lot of levels that the more often those of us that are on platforms that are connecting with a large variety of men and women, the more transparent we can be. We can destigmatize talking about these kinds of things. I think there's absolutely no shame if you choose to get filler or you choose to get Botox or you just choose to get a laser or whatever it is you decide to do. There's no judgment. I think we each have to decide what works best for us. And I just kind of build this into my discretionary budget that I use. You know, I just say, okay. Every, you know, eight to 10 weeks, this is what I do. I do a little bit of Botox at a time and that works a whole lot better for me, you know, and it ends up being the same amount of money because I'm not doing as large of a dose. I'm just doing a little bit at a time and that's worked better for me. How about you, Melanie? I have not done Botox. I've been interested in doing it actually. One of my friends said she did it. Well, she's done it in her face and then she did it for TMJ or I know it's not TMJ, it's TM. The right acronym is different. TMJ is actually just the name of the joint. Well, that inflammation or like people that have migraines, they'll use it therapeutically. Like I clench my jaw and I get inflammation there. And she said it's been a complete game changer getting it in her jaw, actually. I'm glad to hear that you went into the research on the fasting. I I probably would have thought that it speeds it up, but it's interesting to hear that there's not really any research. And I was of the same opinion that people are so different. And, you know, some people metabolize things much faster than others. And it's just really unique. And I cannot agree more about the stigmas. I echo what you said. And then what Jessica said, where she said that it's one piece of the puzzle for her overall well-being. I find it really ironic that maybe I'm going to go on a soapbox, but we don't stigmatize like makeup, you know, and that's arguably changing your appearance. The only difference is that it's temporary and you can wash it off. Or how is it any dif- different than a filter? You know, that's the the one thing like I, I, I struggle with this a little bit because I, I'm obviously 50 years old and listeners may hear me say this more than once that, you know, there's so much kind of smoke and mirrors and it, it's not unique to any one age group, but there's absolutely nothing wrong if you want to get your hair highlighted or you want to go to the gym and exercise or you, you know, choose to use an injectable or you want to get your teeth whitened. I mean, I kind of think of it all on a similar continuum, although I do find, and I'm, I'm sure you probably see this on social media, sometimes people are, if someone looks really good for their age, they just assume they have to have had done something to themselves. And I think that's unfair. <laughs> there are some people who are just unicorns and they look great probably rolling out of bed, but the rest of us may require a little bit of, you know, I don't want to use the word smoke and mirrors. We might require a little bit of makeup or we might require, you know, maybe we've got, you know, spanks on underneath our dress. I mean, these things that make us feel good about ourselves it's not for external validation. It's just, it makes us feel better. Like if we're going to stigmatize cosmetic surgery, fillers, Botox, I honestly think it should be in the exact same bucket as filters on Instagram, makeup, even like the clothing you choose to wear. Because all of it is, be it the motive to make yourself feel more attractive for yourself or for other people. The motive is, you know, making you feel better in your own skin and your actual appearance. And so... I don't I don't think that's anything wrong with that. I think people should just do what makes them feel good. So yeah, I have I have no issues with it at all. And I do think it's really important to, you know, do your research and make sure you're working with practitioners so that you'll be happy with it and so it doesn't, 
you know, become something that you obviously regret. Yeah, we, we don't want anyone to look like a Muppet. That's kind of my general gestalt. You know, I have teenage boys and and sometimes they'll ask if they see something on TV or in, you know, a print ad, they'll say, you know, what's wrong with that person's face? And I'm like, I'm probably going to guess they used a little too much filler. And, you know, there's no judgment, but, you know, to each his own about what works for you and, you know, what aligns with you philosophically and otherwise. I just think the world is a better place when we don't pass judgment on one another and we just accept that we may have different opinions about a lot of different things. Yeah. And with the judgment piece, like, what does it matter? Like, what does it matter what somebody else looks like? Like, why do we, why do we have to judge them or have even have a feeling about that either way? Like it's people's personal life. I think people get triggered and then they get nasty and they're keyboard warriors and projection. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Shall we answer one more question? Yep. So this is from Leah. Hello. I was introduced to IF via Jen's book, Fast Feast Repeat by one of my best friends three weeks ago while I was visiting her. I quick read through two thirds of it while I was there, agree with everything I saw so far and started IF that very day. Now I'm binging the podcasts. Melanie, I just discovered you have a separate one like Jen does and will be starting that one very soon, along with searching out your book, What, When, Wine. And I'm on episode 104-ish of this one. I vaguely recall an episode with a guest, I think that mentioned testing urine pH, or maybe it was in the stories podcast, but can't really remember what the pH is supposed to ideally test as alkaline or acidic, nor what this indicates. I have a matchbook pH strips that I ordered immediately after hearing about such an easy and inexpensive way to test things, but ADHD and can't remember what I'm testing my pH for. Could you all shed some light on this and maybe go into the science behind it or something? You both explain things so well and in layman's terms, so it makes sense to all of us listening. I did have another question originally, but I wanted to catch up on the present before asking. And although I'm only a third of the way through the episodes, they've all been answered in the podcast so far. Juve, Dry Farm Wines, and the Bone Broth People. I'll hear the name next podcast, LOL. All sound awesome, and I intend to give each one of them my business as I am able and when I have the freezer space. Thanks for such awesome recommendations. Much appreciated, Leah. All right, Leah. Thank you so much for your question. Perfect timing. The guest that you're referring to was Dr. Anna Kabeca, who we were talking about earlier. So we'll put a link in the show notes to the episodes that we've had with her. But so basically the idea with urine testing for pH is that our bodies need to maintain a certain pH in the blood. I just asked Cynthia and it, she said it was what, 7.35 to... 7.45. 7.45. Here's the thing. People will often make the argument that your food choices and everything don't matter because we don't really see a change in the blood pH because our bodies buffer it accordingly, which tends to be true. So when you measure your blood pH, you're usually not going to see it outside of the parameter that needs to be in. If you're eating a really acidic diet, for example, your body has to do things to buffer that acidic load and create the more alkaline state that it needs to be in. So that requires certain minerals and nutrients, and those have to come from somewhere. So it's a stressful process for your body to maintain the pH that needs to be if the diet that you're eating doesn't quite support that. And the place that you can see that, because again, measuring your blood, it's probably not going to show up in your blood. You can see it in your urine because that's where you're going to see the the metabolic byproducts of that process. So measuring your urine with a pH strip can show you if your body actually is, quote, more acidic. And again, the the confusing thing about it is your body is actually not acidic because your body is mitigating it, but it's a stressful process that could be pulling minerals and such from your bones, for example. So eating a diet that supports a healthy pH state, and they often call it like an alkaline diet, can support that. And then there's a lot of there's a lot of controversy around that because there's a difference between like if you go online and you google alkaline versus acidic foods, you're going to get a lot of different lists because some people will say the certain foods are alkaline and acidic based on the actual food itself. Some people go by the Prowl score, which I think is more important, and that's the potential renal acid load. And that actually speaks to the metabolism of those foods and the resulting 
acidic or alkaline effect it has based on the ash that is created from those foods. So I would go by those lists. You can just actually Google Prowl, P-R-A-L. We can actually put a link in the show notes. There's some pretty good lists online. But yes, so the purpose of the pH is to see if your body is more easily maintaining the pH that it needs to be at. What are your thoughts on that, Cynthia? I might've screwed some of that up. (laughs) No, I think you did a a beautiful explanation. When I think about pH, now obviously my background's in ERMAD and cardiology. So we did arterial blood gases. I mean, we were looking at really, really minutiae of information on, on people who were very sick. I think that, you know, testing urine pH is certainly, you know, reasonable to be looking to see if you're leaning more alkaline or acidic. I think what's most important is that you're really leaning leaning into a healthier, less processed diet, like lots of, you know, polyphenol rich foods. If you tolerate, I start thinking about, you know, eat the rainbow along with less processed meat, eggs, fish, et cetera, or you're going to more naturally kind of lean towards an alkaline based you know, methodology. Do I routinely check my urine? No, but my integrated medicine doc every once in a while wants me to check. So I have the strips at my house you can buy on Amazon and it's very easy to do. I use it as a check-in. I can pretty much tell you that I exist in an alkaline state more often than not. But if I were to eat too much dark chocolate or if I ate a bunch of processed food, I'm sure I'd probably lean more acidic. But I, I don't think anyone should worry or stress about this too much because our body does a great job of buffering. You know, we have bicarbonate, uh, you know, we have things in our bodies that are designed to buffer pH. You know, there, there's a whole methodology, you know, in a respiratory system and our kidneys really do a nice job fine tuning this. So don't put a lot of stress into it. I'm so glad that you are enjoying Jen's book. And yeah, there's, there's so much goodness in this podcast. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Awesome. Yeah. I've, I've actually also heard I don't know if this is true, but we actually talked about this before on the show when I was going down my rabbit holes of researching pH and alkaline acidic states. People will say that the reason you sigh after a big meal is because one of the methods of offloading, because you're talking about all the different ways that we um, buffer that that acidic load is actually through our breath. I don't know if that's the case, but it actually makes sense to me. Well, that's what I was saying. The lungs and the kidneys are what provide the buffering, whether it's, you know, alkalosis or acidosis. If when you look at results from an ABG, it can show you how the body's trying to compensate. And it's really cool. Like I, back in my critical care days, I loved diving into all the science behind that. But the body really is very sophisticated. Unless you have a kidney problem or you have respiratory problem, your body works very, very hard at, you know, fine tuning, you know, your blood pH and, you know, pH pH in your body overall, because we know for homeostasis, it's really important that we keep things in this very kind of narrow parameter. You know, even, and I know we're running out of time, but even something like, because when you're, when you're saying that, talking about how our body regulates things, it really is impressive. So for example, like calcium, people could be following a pretty low calcium diet. And I can, I mean, I don't want to make absolutes, but if you go to the doctor and test your blood calcium, it's it's probably still going to be fine. Like it's really impressive what the body can do. And even when you think about blood sugar, like I know we talk about people's blood sugar spiking, but if you, even the massive spikes that we think of, if you compare that to the amount of sugar people are taking in that led to that, it's really impressive that the body even keeps it at at um, numbers that we would think would still be really high. And I think we see that with people who have type one diabetes, because that's when they will get, you know, blood sugars that are like, even in like the 500s or something. And it's like, oh, so this is what would be happening if the body actually couldn't regulate. So. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get my favorite electrolytes for free plus special announcement. Element's new chocolate medley is here. So when you think electrolytes, you might think summer and hot times and needing to stay hydrated. But did you know that hydration is actually super important in cold weather as well? There's an idea out there that cold weather reduces our hydration needs. That's not true. So in the cold, two main things can actually increase our metabolic rate. You may be working harder, tramping through the snow, and you can be wearing cumbersome winter clothing that can actually raise your energy needs by 10 to 20%. And as your metabolic rate raises, your sweat 
rate raises. And you need to replace those fluids with electrolytes. You also lose more water when it's cold through your breath. That's because cold temperatures contain significantly less water than hot temperatures, aka it's drier outside. When you breathe in that cold, dry air, your respiratory system actually acts like a humidifier so that your body can be warm and humid like it likes to be. Of course, that drains your hydration reserves as well. One study actually found that respiratory water loss after a full day of activity nearly doubled at freezing temperatures compared to the 70s. On top of that, when you're cold, you actually become less thirsty, possibly from blood vessel constrictions in the cold, which can trick the body into thinking the blood volume is higher than it is. In other words, it's cold out there. You probably need hydration. And electrolytes are so key for all of these cellular processes in your body, all of your energy production. It all requires electrolytes, but it can be hard to find electrolytes, which are clean, without unnecessary fillers, and which you can feel good about drinking. That's why I love Element. There's a reason I'm obsessed with it. There's a reason all you guys are as well. And like I said, I'm so excited because Element's new chocolate medley is here featuring chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. And this is a limited time, so you definitely want to stock up on these now. Plus, you can get a free gift with purchase when you purchase that chocolate medley or other Element electrolytes. That's right, you can get a free sample pack, eight single serving packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. You can get yours at drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. That's drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. By the way, those chocolates in that chocolate medley make delicious hot chocolates. And of course, as always, Element has a no questions asked refund, so you have nothing to lose. So go to drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast to get your free electrolytes. Alrighty. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go, if you would like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. So a reminder to listeners to definitely enter the giveaway that we talked about in the beginning of the episode. That was to win an awesome collection of goodies from Cynthia's team, supplements, and some really fun things. Check out our Instagram, I have podcast to see what you can win. And again, to enter, write a review of Cynthia's book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation on Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, wherever you got the book from. Send a screenshot to questions at ipodcast.com and we will enter you into that giveaway. And this is open to listeners in the continental United States only. And then some more resources for you guys before we go. The show notes for today's episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 268. Those show notes will have links to everything that we talked about as well as a full transcript. So definitely check that out. And you can follow us on Instagram. I am Melanie Avalon on Instagram and Cynthia, I promise someday I'll remember your handle. Wait, wait, let me try. Let me try. Let me try. Underscore Cynthia underscore Thurlow. Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. I know. And for everyone who's listening, it is innately frustrating because I was not able to have the same name across social media. So yeah, it's, it's, it, my team even scratches their head. So it's Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore, and I have a blue check. So you'll be able to find me. Yes. You're very easily findable. So that's good. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful and I will talk to you next week. Sounds great. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.